I'm Chris Alvarez, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar. We talk about military history from ancient to modern times and everything in between. You can find more podcast episodes, written interviews, war games, and the most detailed military history timeline on the web at warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. We're on YouTube at warscholar1945. You can send comments and suggestions to info at warscholar.org. Thanks for listening. I'm speaking with Sir Max Hastings, author of Operation Chastise, the RAF's most brilliant attack of World War II. Thank you for speaking with me. My pleasure, Chris. So first, um, I know you've written a lot of military history, um, a lot of books, and we've actually talked about your Vietnam book previously. Um, has this book always been on your mind uh, to write on this subject, or did something more recently prompt um, your interest? Well, there were two things. First of all, uh, the story of um, Operation Chastise, which was the May 1943 RAF um, 617 squadrons attack on Germany's Ruhr dams. Uh, this was part of the legends of my childhood, that uh, although the raid happened two years before I was born, that uh, Paul Brickhill wrote a book about it in 1951, and then four years later, they made one of the classic British black-and-white war movies of all time, starring Richard Todd and, uh, um, and uh, um, Redgrave playing uh, um, the, the scientist who devised the so-called bouncing bombs, mm. uh, Wallace. And so these stories were what I grew up with when I was a kid, and... I always wanted to write something about it, and I was never convinced that any of the books that had been written uh, really got to the bottom of the story. Partly, in the days when the books were written in the 1950s about it, everybody still took an incredibly nationalistic view about the Second World War. Mm. And one of the reasons we all thought the dams raid was terrific, by comparison with the raids that burnt Germany's cities, was that it seemed victimless, that nobody seemed to have got hurt. It was a huge achievement by these incredibly brave um, 133 young men of 617 Squadron, um, in which no people got hurt, just these dams got broken. But I was always very aware of the fact that um, German, not only German civilians, so first of all, 13 or 1400 people died in these attacks, most of whom were not just German civilians. They were... Um, Hitler's prisoners, they were slave laborers. They were uh, over 700 uh, Polish and Russian and Ukrainian uh, women who were held in a camp below the Mona, uh, drowned in the what the Germans today call the Mona catastrophe, the great flood, the biblical torrent that uh, followed the breaking of the Mona Dam. At the time, did um, was there any, did the British public, were, were they aware of any of these casualties? Did or actually the British government, did um, the Soviets lodge any kind of complaint? Did the Germans make any big deal about these uh, prisoner casualties? The, the Germans did. The Germans obviously uh, wanted to suggest that this was an atrocity, mm -hmm. uh, and so they made big play with uh, the civilian casualties. But at the time, that by 1943, the, the war had been going on for nearly four years, and people, all people knew... The, the British public was pretty dispirited by the summer of 1943, that not much seemed to be going right in the war effort. Sure, once the United States and Russia were in the war, it was obvious that sooner or later the Allies were going to win. But in 1943, that an awful lot 
was still going wrong, and the British army was still suffering uh, quite severe defeats sometimes, uh, although the whole sort of trend of the war uh, was working for the Allies, that uh, uh, an awful lot of pain was uh, being suffered, an awful lot of blood was being shed. And so the British people didn't feel too good at that point. And it was wonderful for them to feel that at last here was a great triumph of British arms, and they all woke up the morning after the dams raid. They saw all these huge front-page aerial photographs of the flooding of the Ruhr. And they thought, this is terrific. At last we've done something right. And also, uh, although they weren't told at the time about these amazing bouncing bombs, so-called, that were devised by the scientist um, Barnes Wallace, that they did realize that for these, the 19 crews of the so-called Dambuster Squadron, um, who attacked these dams flying straight and level at a height of 60 feet, just 60 feet up above the water, flying dead low to drop these bouncing bombs, which broke these dams. And it was, it was a mixture of courage and British ingenuity that really cheered up the British people and impressed the people in the United States. That one always has to remember, Churchill and Roosevelt uh, talked to a lot of baloney during the war. They had to, mm-hmm. about Grand Alliance. But the American public, as all the opinion polls show, they thought pretty poorly of the British. All they could see about the British was the British always wanted things from the Americans, mm-hmm. um, and the British Army kept getting beat. And suddenly, they too woke up the morning after the dams raid, and they saw these incredible photographs. And the New York Times carried an editorial saying, this is the most amazing feat by the British since the Battle of Britain. And American people really were impressed. They really thought, here is something amazing that the British have really got right. And it's very striking that right through to the end of the war, although um, Americans had respect for the Royal Navy, uh, they never thought much of the British Army, but they thought that the Royal Air Force was absolutely terrific. And one of the reasons they thought the Royal Air Force was terrific, part of it was the Battle of Britain in 1940, but part of it was um, raids like the, the Downbusters raid, the Operation Just Eyes. And it was an amazing achievement. The, the bad news, the British point of view, the British hoped that breaking these dams in the Ruhr were going to cut off water to Ruhr industry because to make steel, to run the coal mines, to run almost anything uh, to do with industry, you need an awful lot of water. And um, that these dams were the dams that uh, provided the water for German industry. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, before the raid, um, a spoil sport economist in the British Ministry of Economic Warfare, um, he warned that although the Mona Dam uh, was a, a vital target and um, uh, the Mona Reservoir provided a lot of the water, there was another dam eight miles down the road called the Sorpi, which he said, if you only break the Mona and you don't break the Sorpi, then the Germans are still going to have enough water for their industry. And the, the Sorpi Dam, unfortunately for the British, was an earthen dam. It had a huge earthen wall, and it was not vulnerable to Barnes Wallace's terrific bouncing bombs. These they were really actually um, depth charges. They were three-ton depth charges. Um, they were dropping. And this huge earth wall of the Sorpi, it just, it had a sloping face. And, uh, these depth charges, these, um, um, they, they codenamed them upkeeps. These upkeeps, um, had very little hope of breaking, um, an earthen dam. And the Ministry of Economic Warfare, they warned beforehand, if you can't break this dam, 
they didn't quite say you're wasting your time, but they said there's no doubt that breaking ammonia will make a fantastic mess releasing whatever it was, 150 million tons of water on the, the countryside around, but it will not much hurt rural industry, and that's actually what happened. So the economic effect on the Germans was pretty limited, but the, it was an incredibly spectacular achievement, and it made everybody feel better, and in wars, um, and especially in the Second World War, that the moral business, what it does to morale, first of all, it cheered up the British and the Americans, but it also... It really, really, really scared the Germans. Even Hitler and Goebbels were incredibly upset. They were really alarmed. And Speer, Hitler's armaments chief, he woke up in the middle of the night to be told about this. And he overflew the floods first thing next morning at dawn. And then he landed. And at first, he was absolutely terrified that this was going to have a hell of an impact on German industry. Mm -hmm. But then um, Speer, who was um, a genius of improvisation and management, Speer got his uh, workforce together. He brought in thousands of workmen, a lot of them Dutch, Italian, French, forced labor. Um, he brought them down to the Mona. He got them working. And by mid-September 1943, six months after uh, the dams were broken, just in time to catch the autumn rains of 1943, they managed to uh, to repair the dams. And, and the Mona Reservoir filled again that winter. And the big British mistake. Uh, what they should have done was to bomb the repairs, not with the not with the depth charges, not with um, um, upkeeps as they call them, but with ordinary conventional bombs because they had this huge cat's cradle of scaffolding, wooden scaffolding up against the dams, and you wouldn't have needed very accurate damming to uh, 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 bombing to play hell with the uh, with the repairs. But the British didn't do this because um, the commander in chief of Bomber Command, uh, a monster called Sir Arthur Harris. Harris never really believed in uh, attacking the dams anyway. And once chastise had happened and everybody had had their day in the headlines, all he wanted to do was forget about the dams. And it was a huge mistake. And I was lucky enough to interview both Harris and uh, um, Barnes Wallace, the, um, the, the bomb's creator, uh, back in 1977 when I was writing another book called, uh, called Bomber Command. And Wallace said to me then that the great disaster have been after the success of the original attack that they didn't um, bomb the repairs. And that's because Harris didn't want any part of it. And Wallace was still pretty bitter about that all those years later because he'd always, Wallace had always had a conscience about the very heavy losses 617 Squadron suffered because they lost mm -hmm. eight out of the 11, uh, eight out of the 19 crews um, that were sent to the downs. That's a loss rate of the, of the crews that actually got to Germany. They lost almost half which was pretty heavy even by the standard of wartime bomber losses. So Wallace felt pretty bad about that. And he also felt bad because he was a very serious Christian and he was appalled by the civilian casualties, which he hadn't even thought about before the raid was launched. So he felt that the sacrifice of these incredibly brave young men was wasted uh, by the fact that they didn't bomb the repairs. I'm speaking with Sir Max Hastings author of Operation Chastise, the RAF's most brilliant attack of World War II, coming out in the U.S. on February 18th, 2020, from Harper Books. You can find his work at maxhastings.com. The link is also in the show notes. And don't forget to like and follow me at warscholar.org and warscholar1945 on YouTube. Now back to our podcast. 
So this brings to mind one question I had was this concept of um, Churchill's concept of military theater. And what you've described to me sort of suggests that the whole operation was about the theatrical part and morale. And then beyond that, they didn't push. Yeah, you're, you're, I'm glad you reminded me of that because one of the points I've made, not only in this book, but in other books I've written about the Second World War, is that Churchill always understood, in many ways better than his own military commanders, that when you had this long, long lag between Dunkirk, when the British Army was kicked out of France, and D-Day in 1944, that's four years before the British and American armies did anything big, because um, Italy and North Africa were not big operations by the standards. They just involved a handful of divisions by comparison with what was going on in Russia where you've got um, millions of men confronting each other every day. So Churchill realized that if you did nothing for four years, you had to try and persuade people, you had to do things that made people believe there was still some momentum in the war. And very often, operations would be devised, which the chiefs of staff would think were a waste of time, some of these commando raids on northern France and that sort of thing. But Churchill regarded, and I, I created this name, Military Theatre, Churchill realized that you had to do things that cheered up the British and American peoples and made them feel that something was actually going on with the war, even if in truth, in the, in the sort of big, harsh numbers, not a lot was going on. So Churchill realized that the dams raid was enormously valuable, and he was actually in Washington at the time that the Dams raid uh, took place. And it was a great moment when um, he and the head of the RAF got the signal uh, in Washington saying that this raid had been successful because, my gosh, they needed um, some evidence for um, the American chiefs of staff as well as the American people that the British were out there actually doing something because it was an embarrassing reality that more than half the entire British army um, was sitting in Britain training and getting equipped between June 1940 and June 1944, which was an awful long lag. Mm -hmm. Now, I noticed there was an American uh, that was part of this crew. He was with the RAF, but um, was that part of the, the theater bit that an American was part of this operation? No, I don't think. He was a remarkable man called Joe McCarthy, mm -hmm. who before had been a, uh, a Coney Island uh, um, lifesaver. Um, and he'd always wanted, he came from a very humble uh, New York background. I think his father was a farmer, and he'd always wanted to fly, but um, the United States Air Force wouldn't have him because he hadn't completed high school. So um, uh, he rode a bus up the Canadian border, and uh, he joined the Canadian Air Force, and um, then eventually ended up in the Royal Air Force. And he very quickly proved himself to be an outstanding pilot. And um, a lot of the people who joined the 617 Squadron, there was an elite, there was a core, a, a, a sort of tight-knit tight core of people whom Guy Gibson, the squadron commander, knew well. And um, he'd heard about uh, Joe McCarthy, and he knew that McCarthy was an outstanding bomber pilot. So he requested him. So... They didn't choose him because he was American. They chose him because he was a very good pilot. Now, um, McCarthy, I think he got much less credit than he deserved for his part in the raid because he was one of um, six crews that were dispatched uh, to attack the, um, the Sorpy Dam 
this vital second dam, the earthen dam. And they couldn't bounce their bombs across the water. They had to drop their, theirs um, flying along the dam wall and just drop it as close as they could to the dam wall. But it was a very difficult, uh, uh, even to do it with conventional bombing, because the dam lay in a valley. And you had to make this very low approach, apparently touching the church tower of a village, and fly along the wall, and then pull up like mad after you dropped the bomb, um, not to crash into into the hillside, um, into the forest on the hill. So McCarthy gets the Salpy down, and he was the only one of the designated crews who survived that long, because they'd all flown very low over Germany, and most of the rest of them were shot down or had to turn back. So McCarthy gets the Salpy. And he, like many of those young men, he was so dedicated to the job, he made ten approaches uh, to the Salpy Dam before his bomb aimer was satisfied. They flew this sort of suicide march <laughs> along 60 feet above the dam wall, and they, they made this approach ten times before his bomb aimer was convinced that they had it right, and he pressed the toggle, and the bomb fell away. And the bomb exploded right beside the dam. It was brilliantly placed. But... As everybody had warned beforehand, the earth, the earth and Salpy was um, immune uh, to these bouncing bombs, and it didn't break. And because it didn't break, McCarthy got less credit than he deserved. I mean, I think he was, I've said in my book, um, I think he was an outstandingly brave young man. And to make that approach ten times, uh, um, when any one of those approaches, you would have crashed at the hillside. I mean, it was 60 feet you're doing this up. So it was an amazing story. And only one other crew that night made it to the Sorpy, um, who also dropped pretty close. But again, the second bomb didn't blow it either. But McCarthy was very unusual. And most of the poor kids who flew that raid um, were killed before the end of the war. Um, out of 133 who flew the dams raid, only about 30, I forget the exact number, but only about 30 were still alive at the end of the war. But luckily, Joe McCarthy was one of them. I mean... Um, he completed an amazing number of operations for the end of the war, and he went on to fly with the Royal Canadian Air Force, um, um, all sorts of aircraft types after the war. I mean, he was just a natural flyer, but um, he's an authentic American war hero uh, uh, who um, has had less attention than he deserved. Hmm. Right. Fascinating. Um, considering the the great amount of effort, training, and resources dedicated to this 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 very actually low probability of success mission. It makes me wonder if Churchill had a number of risky operations in the hopper, so to speak, um, or did he just have this one that he put all you know all his all his Churchill, hopes in? Churchill did not. Uh, Churchill knew nothing about this operation hmm. until after it had happened. Uh, he was never involved. Although in the movie they show Churchill as, uh, as having uh, personally authorized the operation. In fact, it was the head of the Air Force, Sir Charles Portal, who um, uh, pushed the operation ahead. But I've argued in my book that although strategically and materially um, the operation was not the success that they all hoped for, it made such an impact uh, on, in moral terms that as military theater, I think it was worth it, only just worth it. Um, but I have what I have tried to do in my book, in all my books these days, I try to tell the story from the other side. I try just not to look at it in British or American terms. And just as in my Vietnam book, I spent a hell of a lot of time uh, researching the Vietnamese end of the story and writing about the Vietnamese. So in this one, I've written about the great tragedy of 
what happened in Germany and of all these people who were drowned. It was literally a biblical torrent that descended on them. Millions of tons of water pouring down, shattering all these homes, sweeping away. Whole houses were being uh, torn up, torn from the ground and swept away down the valley. The floods extended a 100 miles. And the, the tragedy was they didn't affect any of the major industries of the area, but they did incredible damage. I mean, they, they wrecked thousands of acres of farmland. If you thought that was worth that, they killed um, thousands of livestock, um, cattle and horses, and, of course, a lot of people. And the stories of these slave laborers, all these women who've been brought from Ukraine and Poland and Russia to work in German factories and German homes. And, of course, they were trapped behind barbed wire in the compound, and only a small number of them were able to get out of that compound when this floods um, um, descended on them, smashed into their huts. And German survivors described this terrible sight of, of the huts um, being swept along down the valley with all these screaming women still in them um, who couldn't get out and uh, who were drowned um, in the wreckage of the huts. I mean, it was a terrible, terrible story. And so while I admire the courage of the kids who flew the bombers enormously, I remember, as usual, most of them were 2021, 20, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also, I think it's essential at this interval of history that uh, that we recognize what it was like for the people who were at the, on the receiving end. Did you, do you get much into the um, technical aspects of the operation, the planning and the um, the technology used, or is it more about the human side? It's mostly about the human side. Of course, the, the technical side was amazing because the creation of these bouncing bombs and the fact that they strapped um, this um, three-and-a-half-ton rotating bomb. Um, it, it, they decided it was going to work better if it, if it was actually dropped while it was rotating. So they put a hydraulic motor on the bottom of the aircraft and they connect it by driving band to the mine. And five minutes before um, um, each crew dropped its, dropped its mine or depth charge or whatever, that um, they switch on this hydraulic motor. So the thing is rotating at uh, 500 revolutions a minute uh, at the time that it was dropped out of the aircraft. And, of course, the aircraft vibrating. An extraordinary business to be flying this aircraft at 60 feet, and it had to be exactly 60 feet. And they have two searchlights underneath the aircraft, which are set to converge at exactly 60 feet. So you've got the navigator leaning out the side of the plane, saying, down, 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 down. And the pilot, I remember one of the pilots said afterwards, an Australian called Dave Shannon, he thought, he said, you thought the guy was never going to stop saying down, down, down. And eventually, there, there you are flying at 60 feet with this thing revolving under the aircraft. And you've got a crude bomb site to line up this thing up on the towers on the, on the dam. And you're flying straight at it. The Mona was the only one of the dams that was defended. But it's pretty scary when you see the, the, the um, light flak, the 20-millimeter cannon, the 40-millimeter cannon coming straight at you um, at 60 feet above the deck. Um, and you drop this thing three, four hundred yards uh, short of the dam. And the fact that they did it with such amazing precision. And, of course, um, uh, two or three of them were actually killed trying to do it because one of them was hit by, well, one of them was actually shot down by Flack over the Mona uh, because, of course, at 60 feet, there's no, no, no margin of error. I mean, when he was badly hit, mm -hmm. he tried, he clawed just enough height for one or two of the crew to get out, but he went into the deck. And um, um, another plane was badly hit. Um, so it was about as scary a mission as you could get, even in the Second World War. And 
I'm, I'm awed by the dedication of the flyers who carried that out. They knew, most of them knew, that the chances of their surviving this mission were not very good, that it was as near to a suicide mission as anything anybody was asked to do in that war. But they didn't hesitate. They really, um, two things that stick in my mind very much, reading their letters the, of, the, of, of the crews, duty, which comedians are inclined to mock at that word now, but duty was something that meant a huge amount to them. And so did God, that um, a good number of them were very devout Christians. and They really cared. Um, they really thought a lot about their Christian duty. And there's a sort of irony because... Um, people who are um, cynical about these things will say, well, it wasn't very Christian to kill all these, uh, drown all these Germans. Mm. But all these kids knew, nobody talked to them about the um, forced labor camp uh, below the dams. Nobody talked to them about all the civilians who were going to drown. That All they knew was that they were overwhelmingly likely to die, as most of them did before the war was over. Mm. And I find it so moving that they took these concepts of both duty and God so seriously. I, I, so I have no doubt of their bravery and skill, but what were their, so I guess the planes were stripped of much of their armor, they removed some of the, the dorsal guns, um, or the dorsal gun. What were their private thoughts about maybe the technical aspects of flying with, with this kind of aircraft? Well, they had, the Lancaster bomber was probably the outstanding heavy bomber of the Second World War. It was a fantastic aircraft. Um, obviously much less heavily armored anyway, because it was designed to operate at night. Um, it was much less heavily armored uh, than um, the Flying Fortress, the American Flying Fortress. Um, and they took out the mid-upper turret to save one and a half tons of weight, uh, because they got all this kit. They got this bomb hanging underneath the aircraft with a hydraulic motor and so on. Um, one of the things that fascinates me is that the operational research people during the war working for Bomber Command concluded that RAF night bombers would do much better take all the gun turrets out of the aircraft because they'd save about three tons of weight and they'd fly much faster and they could fly higher. And um, the operational research people concluded it was so seldom that RAF gunners flying at night ever shot down a German fighter, that they'd be better to forget the, the defences and just get on with flying faster and higher. But the chiefs of the RAF wouldn't have that at any price. Uh, they said it was psychologically terribly important for the crews to feel they could defend themselves. But, of course, with a, um, with a 303 machine gun, uh, which the all RAF aircraft carried in those days, the 303 machine gun, even if it hit a German fighter, had to be a miracle to actually shoot it down because it just didn't pack much punch compared with German, with American uh, uh, heavy, heavier machine guns. Uh, so um, I think the, the really rough bit, they lost far more planes than they thought. Because they were flying in moonlight, um, they decided their only chance was to fly all the way to Germany at very low level, not quite 60 feet, but 100 or 200 feet. And um, that was proved pretty deadly for two reasons. One is because uh, normally it was night fighters and not flak that shot down Allied bombers. Um, but in this case, when you were flying so low, um, that light flak 20 and 40 millimeter German guns, which are an awful lot between the North Sea and the Ruhr, uh, were able to have a field day. And secondly, of course, there were all the natural obstacles uh, that two of 617 Squadron on, uh, aircraft on the way to the dam 
uh, simply flew into power cables that they didn't see. And that was the end of them. And they all had big problems, this flying at very low level. One crew uh, got incredibly lost and never found, never actually found the dams and had to come home without bombing. And Guy Gibson, the squadron leader, who was a brilliant leader, but a very tough guy. Um, and the morning after the raid, he sacked that crew that had got lost. Um, they all had flying all that way up to Germany. But, I mean, the thing they couldn't believe, normally they were flying at 20-some thousand feet. Mm-hmm. And at 20-some thousand feet, all you see of Germany is is the sort of uh, flames of the cities you're attacking and searchlights and, uh, and, light, and heavy black guns firing. But when you're down there at 100 feet, you'll see all sorts of stuff they never saw. They couldn't believe it. I mean, they were they're seeing um, um, sheep and, uh, and cattle in the fields and farms and... Uh, of railway lines, and, and I think crazily, I mean, the, some of the gunners, uh, they were all so hyped up, when they saw a train, they couldn't resist having a wob at it, whereas, of course, when you're firing tracer, what that does is it shows the people down on the ground, the bad guys, it shows them the aircraft, so I think they should have ordered them not to fire at all until they got the dams. Um, but, so, that whole story of them getting to the dams was an epic in its own right, Um and it was lethal all the way there and back. I mean, the guy who we all think actually broke the Mona Dam, his, his, it wasn't until the, the third um, depth charge or bomb was dropped that the Mona broke. And the guy who think did it, who was a guy who had a nickname of Dingy, Dingy Young, who was actually half American himself, um, that his mother came to California, lived in California, and he was married to an American. And Dingy Young, who was a very experienced pilot, and he did brilliantly to break the Mona down. Uh, but on the way home, he got shot down at the saddest, the most tragic moment of all, because he was just crossing the Dutch coast, literally seconds from safety over the North Sea, when German flat guns got him. And uh, twice before, miraculously, that's why he was known as Dinghy, he brought bombers down in the sea, and his crew had been able to get in the dinghy. And after terrible ordeals, they'd eventually been rescued. And so when um, Young didn't return to their base uh, after the dam's raid, everybody laughed and they said, oh, um, um, Dingy's back back on the water again. But this time he wasn't on the water, poor guy. Um, and uh, um, he left a, a widow over there in New England uh, who never married again, actually. She devoted the rest of her life to music, a girl called Priscilla. And they'd only, like so many of those wartime marriages, they'd only known each other for a few months. I'm speaking with Sir Max Hastings, author of Operation Chastise, the RAF's most brilliant attack of World War II, coming out in the U.S. on February 18th, 2020, from Harper Books. You can find his work at maxhastings.com. The link is also in the show notes. And don't forget to like and follow me at warscholar.org and warscholar1945 on YouTube. Now back to our podcast. So that uh, so you did say you felt the operation was worth it just barely, but considering how high the casualty rate was, and it was some of the best Commonwealth bomber pilots out there, yeah. um, it just strikes me that, like you say, it's just barely worth it. But it's what a price! What a price they paid for that. Yeah, but the saddest thing about the longer I study wars, and the more you realize that the operations that are often the bravest and uh, that you lose the best people um, are very often the ones that don't succeed and don't prove to be worth it. But it's very difficult to quantify anything in a war. 
it's very difficult uh, when you're not actually capturing territory and you can't say we captured Rome or we captured Paris or whatever the hell it might be, um, that um, it's very difficult to quantify things. Um, All you can say in this case was it did make an awful lot of British people feel better. Um, And and I say it did a lot for British prestige in the United States where it had fallen pretty low. Um, There was a terrifying opinion poll a few months earlier that I've got somewhere, and I quoted in another of my books, where Americans were asked who they thought was trying hardest to win the war. And inevitably, a majority of Americans said <laughs> the United States. But then after that, um, some said the Russians, and uh, some said the Chinese. But when they were asked where the British came, only 2% of Americans said they thought that uh, the British were trying hardest to win the war. Um, which was a reflection of the fact that Americans had not been impressed by all the defeats the British had suffered earlier in the war. Um, and so there was a lot of cynicism in the United States. And, um, and certainly um, one of the reasons that I would still say that the dam's raid was marginally worthwhile was the fact that it did make such an impression in the United States. Going back to the technical aspects of the operation, I was it was interesting to note that the uh, Germans had torpedo netting, netting up. Um, so it that, that was, was why they came up with the whole bouncing concept, because um, you couldn't fire an underwater torpedo at the dam because of the netting in front of the dam. The fact that Germans had protected almost all their dams, their big dams, with nets, so that um, you couldn't fire any sort of explosive charge straight at it underwater. So it was only by bouncing it uh, over the water that you had a chance of, of getting the the whole idea was it had to make three or four bounces each bomb rotating as it went and then it hit the damn wall and then sank um, and it sank and then a hydrostatic pistol uh, fired the charge about five or six seconds uh, after it sank below the, below the surface um, and the degree of precision you needed I mean and the other thing of course amazing was it all done in a few weeks because although the RAF chiefs had identified Germany's dams as target way back in 1938, and they started thinking seriously about mid-1940. It was only in 1942 that, I mean, the trouble was that they knew you needed a big bomb, um, and British bombers in 1940 and 1941 couldn't possibly carry a bomb big enough to break a German dam. But suddenly, in 1942-43, you suddenly got the Avro Lancaster, uh, which can suddenly carry a charge that may be big enough to break the dams. And they did all these tests. The tests went on for about 18 months. Um, and they were testing and testing. And eventually they found that if you could explode a charge directly against the dam, um, then you needed only a relatively small charge, about three or three and a half tons uh, of explosive, to maybe break the Mona and the Ada, which they also broke, although that had nothing to do with the rural water system. But, the meeting at the Air Ministry, which made the decision to go ahead and to, to make these uh, these bombs and modify the Lancasters, didn't take place till the end of February, and the raid took place in May, um, March, April, May, three months later. So they actually built um, these bombs and modified the aircraft and trained the crews in the space of three months. I mean, it was a fantastic. You think if you started doing something like that in peacetime, it'd probably take you about three years. To, uh, to organize and to carry out an operation of that kind. But in those days, under um, the stresses of war, they put this whole thing together. 
up in that short space of time. And of course, the crews, when they were training, they were only taught, they were only told that they were going to have to fly very low at night. So they were practicing over water, over British dams, but they were not told that dams were the target. They were absolutely terrified. It was going to be German battleships, which were incredibly heavily defended. And in fact, when they were finally told on the night of the raid that they were going to attack the German dams, a lot of them were incredibly relieved because they knew nothing at all about dams. They were just so grateful that they weren't being asked to attack the German battleship Tirpitz or one of those, which they really did think would be a suicide mission. So when they took off for Germany, yeah, they were scared, but probably not as scared as they would have been if they'd known what it was going to be like. So it seems that um, even though the British military wasn't, um, didn't seem to be doing its part, didn't have success, it seems like uh, on the technical side of, of war, uh, the British seem to be well organized to, to develop um, the right kind of technologies. Is that the case? or The British did very well um, with their technologies. And when you think of the achievements, not just the bouncing bombs, but uh, the code-breaking um, uh, code technology and a whole lot of other stuff, um, it wasn't universally successful. In that, for example, the Royal Navy um, was very badly defended against air attack right the way through. Um, but the RAF had some brilliant technology. And um, later in the war, uh, the um, the British Army got some terrific, uh, very sophisticated tanks of various kinds. That uh, I'd say the British, the British Army was never remotely as effective a fighting machine as the German Army. Um, but the British generally um, managed to make better war than the Germans in the end. Uh, I mean, obviously, it has a slow start. The United States have a slow start mm-hmm. uh, because it takes a while. If you've been operating in a peacetime uh, environment, uh, it takes a while to tool up your industry for, for war. But in the end, the British did incredibly well, and the British displayed a lot of ingenuity. And they produced some wonderful weapons, especially uh, aircraft weapons. Um, let's turn to the resources you used for your research. Um, you mentioned some older interviews. Um, what, what else did you use um, for this book? Well, what started me out um, was the fact that when I wrote my earlier book, Bomber Command, back in 1977, that there were a hell of a lot of old air crews still alive. So I was then able to in- do a lot of interviews with air crew. And I did feel that I knew a lot about uh, the bomber offensive and about what it was like to do it. And in fact, the RAF back in those days flew me in its one surviving Lancaster bomber. And I sat in all the old crew positions, and I sat in the rear turret while they had the Spitfire and the Hurricane doing passes over me to show what a um, what it looked like to a bomber gunner to have a fighter attacking. And so I felt um, I got off to a good start, having known a lot from those days. Then I felt that no book had done justice to the German dimension. And I just felt that um, I wanted to do, I wanted to do um, something about one's admiration for the courage of those kids. A lot of my books, I always try and face the reality, face the truth, and not go in for romantic uh, uh, twaddle about the war. I mean, one has always been terribly aware that most of the kids who did these amazing things, whether American or British, whether by land, sea, or air, Whatever they may have said after the war, most of them were absolutely terrified when they did it, and they were right to be terrified. Um, that nobody likes to face the prospect of going to an early grave. And I did, 
I found the whole story of that squadron and those young men uh, so moving. And it, it's a story with a beginning and a middle and an ending. The Vietnam War book I did took me three years' research to do. I spent a year traveling in the United States and Vietnam interviewing and so on. And I'm pretty tired. And I'm, um, when I started the Downbusters book, I was, I was 72. And I felt I wanted to do something that, um, not a smaller story, it was, it was, it's a big story, but I wanted to do something within a smaller compass. I didn't want to do another sort of vast blockbuster book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really enjoyed doing it. And I'm doing another one at the moment about uh, um, a big Mediterranean naval battle in 1942. And um, there again, um, it, it's, it's a story with a beginning and a middle and an ending about things that happened in a few days. When you get to my stage, having written 27 books, mm-hmm. you feel that... Um, um, it's great to be able to do something within a, a, a narrower frame. In other words, a miniature rather than the sort of grand uh, widescreen IMAX epic. <laughs> you, you mentioned the letters, I think letters and maybe diaries. Um, where, where did you find those? Are those personal effects or in archives? Well, um, one of the things sometimes people say that the historians are not very generous with each other. I always found I'm amazed how generous a lot of um, historians are of all nationalities mm-hmm. and um, um, I found this with all my books but especially with this one there are two or three um, writers who devoted their whole lives to um, studying the dam's raid and to studying the dam buster squadron and I was so moved by um, how incredibly generous they were and you know, the historian of the dam buster squadron um, uh, came with me to Germany to visit the dams and I went round with Germans though who devoted their whole lives to um, to studying it. But also there was a remarkable man called Richard Morris who wrote a biography of Guy Gibson, uh, the 24-year-old who led the dams, right? And Gibson's story was in many ways a tragedy. He was a very unhappy guy, a very lonely guy, very driven. Um, and he was killed in September 44. Uh, because really he, he shouldn't ever have been allowed to return to bomb operations after the dams raid, but he didn't know how to do anything else. He'd been flying bomb operations all his adult life. Um, but anyway, Richard Morris, who wrote his biography, was incredibly generous in giving me a whole mass of stuff that he'd found out about Gibson, some of which he found out after um, after he'd completed and published his book. Um, I mean, this poor kid, he'd been born in India, that. Uh, as so, too, was another famous RAF pilot, Douglas Parder. And his mother left his um, his uh, father and came to England when he was five or six years old to send him to boarding school, which is what happened to all the kids in those days. And back in England, his mother became an alcoholic. And in 1932, while he was still a schoolboy, she served a prison sentence for driving offences, having injured pedestrians while drunk. And Christmas Eve, 1939, um, that while also while drunk, she, in the very first months of the war, that um, she caught her dressed in electric fire, and um, the dress caught fire, and she burnt to death, a horrible lingering death. Um, it's not surprising when you know all that about this guy, um, Gibson, who was then about uh, 20 when all this happened, it's not surprising. He was an incredibly driven young man. Um, he was, um, he had innumerable girlfriends. He married a much older showgirl with whom he was thoroughly unhappy. The only thing he really loved was he had a Labrador that he adored, um, that was killed the night before the dam's raid. And 
I think he loved that dog more than he loved any human being. Um, after the dam's raid, when everybody else was celebrating, and he was awarded the Victoria Cross, um, our equivalent of the, American, uh, the U.S. Medal of Honor, um, that whenever Gibson got drunk, he would always talk more about the tragedy of his dog being dead than about even about his broken broken up marriage or his girlfriends or anything else. That the loss of that dog was a terrible blow to him. And um, he went to America and he he uh, became a, a rather a star in America. He went round giving speeches, which everybody loved, and lots of interviews. And he had a great time. And again, went to bed with a lot of girls. But um, when he came back to England um, early in '44. All he could, all he could think of to do was just to go back to bombing. And I say he was killed in September 1944. But um, his tragic life is is is, a, is a, an amazing story in its own right, albeit a very sad one. Yeah. Was there so in the research for this newest book? Um, did you find anything that surprised you? I'm not sure it surprised me because you've got to remember I've been living with. Um, the Second World War and these stories, most of my adult life, I've been writing books about it. But I think um, I didn't know the scale. Um, first of all, I was amazed by how quickly they put the whole thing together uh, from that decision at the end of February '43 um, down to the raid uh, three months later. Um, um, secondly, uh, the more you study these kids, um, and they were kids, I keep using the word kids, but they were apart from being very sophisticated about how to fly an airplane and how to bomb Germany, they really knew nothing about anything. They were fantastically naive. And, um, and of course, most of them never had a chance to complete a life, to get married, to have kids, um, to have any sort, of, uh, any sort of proper life at all. And, of course, they all wrote um, a lot of letters, because in those days, you, you didn't have a lot of access to the telephone. And um, you were only allowed a three-minute conversation, even if you did get on telephone. So they all wrote letters. A lot of these um, young men, who were all going to be branded as heroes, whether dead or alive, the letters they wrote that survive, and I say are very moving, um, most of them were not to wives or girlfriends, because they didn't have them. They were dear mummy. Um, mm. that it, their mothers were still the big thing in their lives. And there's still, there's a... Um, a Scottish estate up, uh, I go up to Scotland to um, fish and hunt in, in the summer and I drive past uh, an estate that used to belong to the family of one of the downbusters and I think of him every time I go by he was 21 years old when he was killed and he'd been a big star at school and he'd been a rowing star and an athlete and he'd done everything and then he died after bombing the Ada Dam um, age 21 and the pathos of it all, he was one of those who wrote letters, dear mummy, um, and the pathos of it all, it really, it's a great story. I mean, it's a, it's a different story from the movie, because everybody, you mentioned Churchill earlier on, because an awful lot of people, even in the United States, have seen the Downbusters movie, and everybody thinks it was, uh, because the Churchill was the one who authorized the raid, and he wasn't, so, so I did want to um, tell the story straight, because the story told straight, even without all the bits the movie put in is an absolutely astounding um, story of, of scientific endeavor and human endeavor. And I still find, um, I mean, I went up while I was writing this book, I went up to do a photo shoot for the Times newspaper up at the what they call the Battle of Britain flight, the RAF, where they keep their veteran aircraft. 
And I found, although I didn't fly this time in the Lancaster, because I'm six foot five inches tall, mm-hmm. uh, inside the aircraft, I have a hell of a time climbing over the main spar or getting into the turrets because as you get older, you get even clumsier and clumsier. Um, but I found I still have a tear in my eye when I look at that Lancaster because of what it means in the same way that many Americans have a tear in their eye when they look at a flying fortress because you just know what those generations did. And it reminds one of how fantastically privileged we are, our generation. We've, we've, sure, um, um, some guys uh, fought in Vietnam or fought in some of Britain's wars and so on, but generally speaking, we've been spared wars in our own homeland and... Uh, We've been spared, thank goodness, uh, being asked to do any of the sort of stuff that those guys were asked to do. And when people sometimes complain now and they worry about the problems facing the world, I'm sure there's plenty to worry about, starting with climate change. But nonetheless, we have been phenomenally privileged. And every time I write stories about that era, um, it just reminds me just how privileged we are. I agree. I was kind of surprised, maybe I shouldn't have been, that the squadron was kept together, that it went beyond just this mission. Um, it just seemed interesting that they, that it, it remained as a squadron um, with new people and, and that sort of thing. Well, they realized, um, the leaders, the RAF, even those like Harris, who've been deeply skeptical about bombing the dams, they realized that um, there was something to be said. Most of Bomber Command had trouble finding a given city on a given night, um, never mind precision bombing. So if you had a squadron that was committed to attacking precision targets, Harry saw um, a purpose in keeping it together. But I have to say I'm a cynic about this. I don't think they ever found a target really worthy of the Dambuster squadron again. But, for example, they did a lot of bombing in 44, 617 squadron of the German V-weapon sites in France and Holland. But actually, they weren't very successful in knocking them out. And it's a grim statistic that at the end of the war, it turned out that the RAF and the United States Air Force had killed more French and Dutch people trying to bomb the German uh, B-weapon sites than the Germans had killed in Britain uh, with their firing their flying bombs and their rocket. And uh, the, the other great precision bombing feat of 617 Squadron was... Um, the, the sinking of the turpits, the battleship turpit, in um, a Norwegian field from uh, in, in November 1944. But the trouble is, and this is where I become, uh, where I, I steer away from the romantic vision of war. If it had been possible to sink the turpits in 1940, 41, 42, even 43, it would have been a great strategic achievement. Um, by November 1944, and the RAF and the Royal Navy had made repeated efforts, unsuccessful efforts, to attack the Turpins. By that date, um, that it didn't mean much because the German Navy, Germany was obviously on its knees, and um, the German Navy was almost out of the war except for the U-boats. And so sinking the Turpins, it was a brilliant circus trick, but it had no strategic significance. So um, although they did some terrific attacks. They knocked out a couple of the uh, 617 squadron precision bombing, knocked out a few viaducts and this sort of thing. I would say they never achieved anything comparable with what they achieved with that first raid um, uh, in May 1943 when they when they destroyed those two dams, which whether or not it had the strategic effect they hoped for, it was it was one hell of a, a, a hell of an achievement of bomb, a precision bombing. Mm-hmm. 
So with this book, both for people who are maybe familiar with the operation or those who are not, um, what do you hope the book will do? I hope it'll make people see it again in a new perspective. An awful lot of people have seen the movie. This is, I hope, the true story of the movie. Well, always wants to be very careful about, um, I often tell people, uh, whenever you see on a book jacket the words definitive, throw it straight in the dustbin because there ain't no such thing. All any of us can do is do our take on a given event. But one thing that's pleased me terrifically with the British readership, uh, um, and we have had a big bestseller over here, um, is that a lot of people have emailed me and written to me and said, you told us a load of stuff about the Dambusters raid that we never knew. And I'd like to think that uh, I've had a pretty good shot of, on the one hand, telling a great, it was romantic, romantic story, and on the other hand, bringing home a lot of um, harsh, very tough realities about the limitations of what it achieved and about the, the terrible things it did in Germany. And what I'm always trying to do with all my books, I'm not a debunker, um, that the truth about almost everything lies somewhere in the middle about about everything, whether it's in war or peace. So I'm just trying to um, strip away a lot of historic myths and a lot of romantic legends and just say, well, here more or less was based on, in, on, on facts that we know um, it is the best telling of this that I can come up with um, in the year of our Lord, 2019, 2020, as it is now in the United States. Any, any difficulties in getting the book finished? Getting it finished. Was it a smooth um, process? I don't know. I've been doing this a long time. It was a story I really wanted to write. Mm -hmm. uh, I find it very exciting um, telling a story that I want to tell. Um, the hard part is the research. But there were moments when I was writing the Vietnam book, um, and there were moments, I remember there was a moment in a rainstorm in North Carolina where I was driving around in a, um Avis car uh, trying to find a motel where I was going to interview a couple of veterans. And I thought, my God, I'm getting too old to do this. Um, and I didn't have that sort of moment with this story because I was sure I knew where to find, uh, where to find the material. And I was sure I got a great story to tell. And so once I was, I was actually writing the story while I was really motoring. And in fact, I'm about to go off to, um, to a beach house in Malaysia and start writing the story of this, uh, a big naval battle in, in, uh, 42. And again, I feel that sense of excitement. I'm not frightened about doing it because I know I've got a mass of very good material, British and Italian and, um, um, and American, um, and German. And what's really exciting as a writer is when you think, I know I've got the story. All I've got to do now is, is just tell it. And really in the end, what we all are, we, whether we call ourselves historians or writers or journalists or whatever it may be, we're storytellers. And if we have successes and if we um, become bestsellers, then um, the only way we can do that is, is if we can spin a yarn, if we can tell a story that a lot of people out there want to read. Mm -hmm. uh, where can people find your work on the web? Well, I've got my own website, which tells you most of the stuff you're going to want to know, um, uh, Max, Max, uh, Hastings.com, mm -hmm. uh, and I get a lot of American visitors to that website, so you'll find a lot of stuff about me and about the um, and about the book there. And pretty soon, I, I hope um, um, uh, you'll all be writing to me from the United States uh, about Operation Chastise, because I hope that you guys 
although there were only a handful of Americans involved in the story, um, that it's such a remarkable story that it sort of crosses national boundaries, that it shouldn't really matter uh, uh, what nationality people you're writing about. It's just a great, great, great yarn. Mm-hmm. That's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? No, that's fine, um, uh, Chris. And thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find more podcasts like this on your favorite podcast feed under the title Military History Inside Out. That includes Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. One great way to support me is to rate my podcasts, either good or bad. You can find more great military history information at warscholar.org, on YouTube at warscholar1945, on Facebook at warscholar, on Instagram at Chris Alvarez Warscholar, and on Twitter at Warscholar. Please support me by following me on those sites and liking my videos. If you like to read, don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I recommend newly published books. The subscription box is on my webpage. Thank you.